Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the second weekend of April 2022. Definitely getting into the spring season here with uh, birds starting to show up. I saw a lot of robins this past week. I heard my first ruby crown kinglets. Others have been reporting rufous hummingbirds. Shorebirds have started to show up as well. I saw greater yellow legs and heard of another one. Black-bellied plover was on the early side here at the uh, reported near the airport. Uh, so it is a good time of year to be getting out and paying attention. You never know what might be showing up uh, these days. And also a good time to get out and start seeing some of those earliest spring flowers, which often uh, don't bloom for very long. Sometimes you can get them a little later further uphill, but it's nice to catch them down at low elevations, or at least I like to do that. I'm noticing that our forecast for the next few days is sunny skies. It has not been a especially sunny year this year, I'd say. It's actually been quite wet and cloudy. Uh, something that I don't mind, but it, I do also appreciate the sun. And so hopefully you'll get a chance to get out and enjoy some of the sun. Temperatures aren't supposed to be all that warm, but uh, it will be nice to see the sun. And I'm sure that it will feel warm, even if the air temperature is a little bit on the cool side. If you are getting out, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. One of the things I enjoy doing is tracking weather trivia, and we are hopefully nearing the end of a streak that I've been paying attention to lately. It's the streak of days without reaching 51 degrees Fahrenheit. You might ask why 51 degrees, and the answer is because we just barely got to 50 degrees one evening back in March. But other than that, we have not seen a temperature above that, so we haven't seen a temperature of at least 51 degrees since the first week of November. That puts us uh, over 150 days, and we are nearing the top five all-time for that. We'd have to make it to the end of the month uh, of April here without seeing 51 to get to the top place overall. But if we can make it through one more week, we'll be at the number two longest streak of days without hitting 51 degrees. For me, it's win-win. I enjoy tracking the streak. Uh, the streak and it's only a few days so if we don't uh, hit 51 it's not the end of the world but if we do hit 51 it will be a a lovely warm day and I will certainly enjoy and appreciate that. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded and originally aired back in the summer of 2019. I spoke with geologist Jason Briner and his master's student Caleb Walcott. They were in town to do some work as part of Caleb's master's research. I recently heard from Caleb that his work had been published in the journal Geochronology. I'll include a link to that when I post this show on my website. We'll go ahead and start the conversation with Jason speaking about the project overall and then hear from Caleb a bit later. In a large part of the world during the peak of the Ice Age 20-ish thousand years ago, and this in southeast Alaska, it turns out it's that we had the maximum ice extent from about 20 to about 17,000 years ago. And so here the Ice Age ended between 17 and 15,000 years ago. And throughout the world, a lot of landscapes like you have here in southeast Alaska were completely smothered by the ice sheets during the Ice Age. And southeast Alaska is actually really unique. Uh, uh, People think that there's portions of the islands out here, uh, some areas very close to Sitka, that escaped ice sheet cover during the Ice Age. And that's extremely rare that, that that happens. Yeah. Uh, You know, one of the things that I always, uh, you know, we've been out a little bit in the field uh, since you all have been here. And 
And just the topography of Baranoff Island in particular is so the, – the mountains are so tall – uh, and and that it, I mean it's clear that a, a massive glacier went down on the east side uh, through Chatham Strait and then came and turned the corner basically at the south end of Baranoff and just spilled out and it's it's kind of cool looking at the bathymetry there you see this you know where where all the the, the runoff and silt and sediment and stuff went but that mountain the mountains seem to have been large enough to to largely prevent the the mainland ice from from coming over and overrunning. Uh, the outer part of, of Baranoff. But clearly there was still ice on the outside of Baranoff as well that presumably started mostly on Baranoff. Maybe some overrunning the valleys. Like, I don't quite understand how all the ice dynamics work. Right. So it it's clear from the scratches on the rocks, the striations, even in downtown Sitka, that that there was a time period during the Ice Age that was so cold that glaciers expanded out of the mountains on high elevations Baranoff then those glaciers came all the way down to present-day sea level, and they probably f- flowed quite a bit offshore um, towards, you know, out to- into the Pacific Ocean. Whether or not the whole island ridge was covered by an ice sheet coming off of, from Canada, basically, the coastal mountains far inland was the accumulation center for a huge ice sheet that we call the Cordilleran Ice Sheet. Whether or not that was thick enough to overtop Baranoff is a completely open question. Yeah, and how would you? So, so your general field of study is kind of glacial, uh, paleoglaciology. Is that kind of yeah, the, yeah? Yeah, we call it gl- glacial geology. Glacial geology. So, mm-hmm. so asking yourself these kinds of questions: what can we look at that's happening now that might inform us about the past, as well as uh, what? Well, both in terms of what ice is doing now in places as well as what are the traces that are left in, in various ways. Right. What a lot of people in, in my line of work do, how they approach this problem is uh, both with data constraints, observations and, and lab data that you generate um, from visiting the field, like, which is why we're, we've come all the way from Buffalo to Sitka. Uh, and, and those data are often used with uh, models, computer models, numerical simulations. And so a lot of people like me who do what I do, work with people that use uh, really powerful computer models to simulate ice sheets and how ice sheets flow and that ice sheet history. And when you combine ice sheet simulations with field observations, you can start to put a realistic picture together of what actually happened. Mm. And so I guess one of the things that's probably pretty important to that is is how thick does the... the well, so glaciers form, snow snowfalls... It compresses under its own weight, essentially, over time. Uh, and eventually it gets heavy enough. And I suppose, especially on a slope, it's easy to imagine that starting to flow downhill. On a flatter area, I guess if it gets high enough in the middle, it pushes out the edges regardless. Um, but how how thick does the ice have to be before it starts to deform and flow, essentially? Yeah, par- and part of the answer to that depends on the climate. So, like, in a, in a relatively warm area, like in southeast Alaska, it doesn't need to get that thick. You know, you can pile that snowbank, you know, uh, 20 feet, 50 feet, uh, it starts to compress into ice. And just due to the force of gravity, it'll start to flow. And if the temperature at the bottom of that ice pack is at roughly the freezing temperature of water, you have liquid water down there. So not Mm -hmm. only does the ice flow, like it actually deforms like silly putty, but it also slides the ice can slide over the terrain, over the island, over the bedrock on a thin film of water. And it's that sliding action uh, and little uh, stones and sand and cobbles in the glacier bed combined with that sliding 
which is what gives you those scratches on the rocks around here. Yeah, you know, I guess uh, I remember reading or hearing somewhere a long time ago that why ice skates work is it's the pressure that actually liquefies the water a little bit. So I suppose at the base of the glacier, you have the same sort of thing going that uh, water, well, ice floats because water expands when it freezes at that last little bit. And if you compress it, you can actually undo the the freezing at at some level. That's right. It's just referred to as pressure melting. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that pressure melting happens. And one thing that, that... you know, I had been confused about it a long time, and then and then somebody told me this. It, it wasn't obvious to me that this is how it worked at, at first. Uh, now it seems more obvious. But like we have lakes here. There's a number of lakes that are um, uh, well above sea level, the surface, and the and the bottom of them is below sea level. Like we went to Blue Lake here in Sitka, uh, and that's an example of one that I can't remember. It's not super far below sea level, but some of them are quite far below sea level. I was just like, how does that work? Because I imagine ice flowing like water where the surface is what tends to move. But then it was explained to me that actually what the, the whole thing moves and it, it it doesn't, you don't get a pool of stagnant ice there. It's actually coming out and flowing from the bottom up and over. Um, and that has to do with the way that that pressure is working. And Yeah, that's exactly right. So the whole column of ice flows and slides. And not only that, but because... Um, it's a really cool property of ice, actually, that the more pressure it's under, the more easily it deforms. Mm. So if you think about a column of ice, let's say it's like, uh, you know, 2000 thick piece of ice that's in the valley back here. Uh, the very bottom of that ice column, that glacier is going to be under more pressure just due to the over- weight of the overlying ice. So in fact, as you go from the surface of the glacier all the way down to the bed, which might be below sea level today, as you point out, the pressure on acting on that uh, column of ice increases, increases, increases all the way towards the bed. And that means that the bottom is going to be the squishiest. It's, it's very squishable and deformable down there. And so in some ways, most of the ice flow happens at depth where it's under that high pressure. Oh, so and so I, I guess if, if I just imagine pushing down on it, it would tend to, since that stuff is deforming, then that's going to tend to squeeze out the sides, even if that means going up the bowl, so to speak, yeah, out of that basin. That's right. Usually glaciers are confined by topography, we say. So mm-hmm. if, if a glacier has filled up a valley, there are cliffs and valley walls that keep it from right. um, flowing out that way. But as soon as those glaciers come out, like into Sitka Sound, for example, then they can spread out laterally and become thinner. And the and then the pressure reduces, and they presumably deform less easily and slow down su- substantially. I guess definitely, definitely, as glaciers come out of mountains, the velocity of, of ice flow decreases usually. Hmm. And so, so um, you know, I asked you this yesterday, and it's something I've been curious about: is is Southeast Alaska? And I'm trying to picture in my mind seventeen to twenty thousand years ago that that kind of that peak ice age, uh, and then the subsequent time as things the ice melted. It's like um, I, I suppose much like looking at, at old lava flows, it help, it's helpful to look at places where it's active now, Hawaii, and say, okay, well, what's going on here? Oh, look at this that's starting to happen. This is what we're seeing, you know, much later. Um, so is, is I know you've done some work in Greenland, and, and it seems like, you know, of all the places, it seems like the, the Antarctica is such a different world of continental ice and, and, and those things that maybe Greenland is a better analog for what southeast Alaska might have been like you know, uh, in yeah, that time period. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I've, um, I've been to Greenland every summer for the last 10 years. Um, that's one of my main research areas. And there, there's a lot to be learned by analogy. 
by yeah. looking at, uh, at an ice sheet uh, today, like on Greenland, and where it flows over fjord, you know, over mountains and through fjords and in sounds. And there's a lot of the perimeter of the Greenland ice sheet where the setting is very similar to south what it would have been like in southeast Alaska. And so, do you when you're traveling around here? And it sounds like uh, so. This is maybe your fourth summer, fourth summer in southeast, uh, spending some time. Uh, and or 2015 anyway was when you when you started coming here. Uh, do you see stuff here that reminds you of? And I guess I, you know I've heard the glacial uh, the Greenland ice ice is retreating a bit and things are starting to open up. Do you see things there that you go? Oh, that's kind of like what I see in Southeast Alaska. Of course, now covered with trees. Uh, and and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Greenland is envious of your forest, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but the, just the shape of the landscape is similar. Yeah. Right. If you remove the uh, the trees or just picture what the landscape looks like, it's not that difficult. You know, the U shaped valleys, the over deepened troughs, like that some of the lakes fill now. Um, just the way the glaciers mold the hills. Uh, that's very much like on Greenland. Yeah, and I guess one of the things that's tricky here is so much of it's covered by water i mean sea level was i can't remember was it 125 is it meters lower than it was now so like over 350 feet lower than it is currently um and then there's other tectonic and isostatic stuff happening in terms of the glacial wane and bulging and and all these things so relative sea level is even a little bit weirder than that but but that a lot of of the lowlands, so so in some respects, the, what we can see now was upland stuff. Well, I mean, not up. Three hundred fifty feet isn't that high, but um, but there's a lot of stuff in the runout that is now covered in water. Um, do you look at that kind of stuff? I guess high resolution bathymetry uh, gives you access to that in in some ways that that we wouldn't have had previously. But it's not still not the same as being able to kind of walk. Yeah, that, that's one of the main challenges actually of working in in this part of the world. So, as you point out, a huge part of the equation of the natural history and the geologic history of this environment, the biological history of this environment, is the fact that not only we had an ice sheet uh, coming over the islands out to the outer coast, growing locally on the high elevation areas like the spine of Baranoff, but not only is there that glacier part of the puzzle, but we also have the huge uh, changes in sea level. The glaciers that grow on these mountains and in inland Canada that I talked about earlier, what we call the Cordillera and Ice Sheet, all that water has to come from somewhere. And that is water that's basically been evaporated off the global oceans, falls onto land as snow, builds vast ice sheets, and never makes it back to the ocean. So the consequence of that is the world's oceans all lower. And during the peak of the last ice age, when we had the most ice on land, the global oceans were, like you said, they're 350 feet or 400 feet lower than they are today. And in this particular region, how far out the ice went towards the Pacific Ocean and whether or not there was any patch of ground that wasn't covered by the glaciers, uh, those areas could now be covered by the ocean. So we could have had areas that escaped glaciation and but now they're all covered by the ocean by rising sea level since that time and we have no clue that they're there yeah. so it's a major sort of complication for us to be trying to find places that escape glaciation because they might be under the ocean now so so the i mean obviously the the most likely spots are outer coast spots and i think when i've seen some maps drawing the suggestion has been sort of the outer coast of Kruzov to southern Bernoff, kind of in that vicinity and then the outer coast of 
Uh, the outer islands outside of Prince of Wales, even. Mm-hmm. And Haida Gwaii down there. Even. And Haida Gwaii, right. Yeah. And so, so is there, I mean, how much evidence is there currently to uh, one direction or the other? Is it still very much a, an open question? Yeah, the reason why it's an open question, there, there have been a lot of people, there's been a lot of what we would say maybe like circumstantial evidence. Suggestive, yeah. Suggestive yeah. of the, some areas being ice-free. But geologists have yet to definitively identify a location based on um, geological dating techniques or other evidence that says, yep, this area wasn't touched by glaciers. So basically the community's like, we pretty sure that there were some ice-free areas, but nobody yet has actually proven or found a particular site. Yeah. And that's really one of the main reasons that we're out here. And so, so that brings us to, to today. We got out to Fred's Creek, uh, and um, you sampled some rocks of the um, the basalt there, basically the the lava flows coming out. And um, we'll see what I remember of of, of what was uh, what was said there. Basically, you would like to do a couple of different dating techniques. One, one of which. Um, I think you called it argon argon dating, which tells you when that rock actually solidified. Ideally, uh, there was some complicating factors, but ideally, it's it's uh, telling you when that rock actually formed rock. Um, and then the other method, uh, which is maybe a beryllium, if I'm remembering correctly, um, tells you how long that rock has been exposed at the surface. And so uh, that tells you that th- those are two different pieces of information. And the idea being that. It's pretty clear that that rock, that lava rock, the basalt there on the south south shores of Kruzov was not overridden by glaciers. Um, it's less clear exactly how old that is, um, it, but but it hasn't been overridden by glaciers. If it's prior, if it's old enough that it's prior to the last ice age, then that would be a, a smoking gun, so to speak, for that didn't get covered by ice there. That was part of a refugia. Uh, if it's younger than that, then that tells us well the ice was gone by then at the very least. Um, and so, how much of that did I remember right? Yeah, uh, very nice. <laughs> um, that's exactly right. So, it basically, the age of the lava flow out there is critical. Mm-hmm. Like, the age of it is critical. Because if that lava flow is, let's just say, 100,000 years old, and it's so pristine. Like, when we visited it today, it was just beautiful. It's like, you, you could have, if we had blind, Caleb and I, this, the graduate student that's with me now, we went over there today. Uh, we had a lovely time, and if you would have put blindfolds on us and told us we were going for a boat ride, and then for some reason we lost track of time, we could have landed in Hawaii for yeah. all we knew, right? It's just gorgeous over there. And that lava flow is so fresh-looking, that basalt flow, it looks like it could have formed like 10 years ago, you know, or whatever, thousands of, a few thousands of years ago, very young in geologic time. And it's pretty clear that a glacier didn't cover that thing. Yeah, because it has all the the fine textures of a, of the surface of a lava flow, and um, it's a little bit uh, jointed. There's a lot of fractures in it, which relate to how the lava cooled actually right after it was erupted as a lava flow. It came down the flanks of the volcano, and then it cooled in place, and that makes it have all these fractures in it. And the glacier could, because of all those fractures, if the glacier went over that, it could pick up those blocks and just destroy it, and it would never look so fresh. So, if that lava flow is, let's say, 100,000 years old. There's no way that it has had a glacier over it since then. If, on the other hand, that lava flow is 10,000 years old, it could have erupted after the glaciers came and gone. Yeah. So the age of that lava flow could be really key for telling us if Kruzov Island out there was covered or not covered by the ice sheet. 
And there's been some prior work on the volcano, but it sounds like, you know, techniques have improved in the last few decades since since maybe that was looked at. Yeah, that's right. So when um, Caleb and I asked our, our volcanology colleagues who do this kind of stuff more for a living, you know, I dabble in glaciers, but I don't do much in with volcanoes a whole lot. But I, you know, in my network, I know of some folks who do it and and their advice was not to 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 trust very much um, these kinds of geological dating techniques, these ages that people got from these lava flows that are twenty or thirty years old. That yeah. that the technology has advanced quite a bit, and there were some known problems. And dating some types of lavas can be really tricky with old methods mm-hmm. that they now they now know how to avoid with some new approaches to to doing I it. See. Yeah, so so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it sounds like it's going to be a little while before the lab work is done on on these kinds of samples. And so this was sort of just a side trip, though, with your main trip being to South Baranoff, or your main uh, objective, I should say, being to South Baranoff. And so I remember talking to Jim a couple years ago when he was trying to get down there. Actually, he had tried and was leaning to leave town. The weather hadn't cooperated, but... Um, and he showed a like a, a boulder, <laughs> like he said, he zoomed in on his on his little app on his phone with aerial imagery or satellite imagery. Say, see that rock right there? I think that's a glacial erratic. Uh, and and so glacial erratics, as you were explaining to me today, there there were the rock that's there doesn't belong, and the glacial part of it means that it was a glacier that dropped it there. I guess there's other ways that you could have erratics. Um, so you're hoping to get down there, and and what are you hoping to find down there? Right. So. Um, this is going to be part of, of Caleb's thesis, and, and that is using our dating method, which um, tells us how long ago a glacial boulder was dropped down from the glacier, um, to use that dating method to see when Southern Baranoff was last covered by glaciers. Uh, based on everything we know now, and including some of the work that, that my group has been doing in the last few years, Southern Baranoff looks like a... a pretty promising location for a site above present-day sea level that may have escaped the last ice age, glaciers from the last ice age. Um, The deep sounds and fjords um, bracketing southern Baranoff may have sucked ice out in those areas. That tall ridge you were talking about, the spine of Baranoff, maybe have protected some of those ocean-facing lowlands. Mm -hmm. Um, The local glaciers on Baranoff probably flowed down the valleys as valley glaciers. And so there's a little bit of terrain down there between those valleys that may have, it just may have escaped Ice Age glaciation. And so it's a kind of a small area and it's a very specific target that we're trying to get to. And I, I think that if we can get there, it might be 15 minutes on the ground and it'll just to our eyes. We've seen, like I was just saying, I've seen glacial landscapes here in Southeast, and I've seen glacial landscapes all over Greenland, you never know. We might get there, and it might just either look glacial or not look glacial. Yeah. And then the rock samples that Caleb's going to collect and then run in the lab this next year, the results from that might definitively tell us whether it was covered by ice or not. And so are you looking to sample bedrock or...? So maybe I can speak a little bit. Uh, (laughs) Jason is obviously much more knowledgeable about all this than me. So what we're targeting are both... um, so these glacial erratics rocks that have been dropped yeah. by the glacier and also bedrock. Um, so when you look at a glacial landscape, as Jason was explaining before, these masses of ice will just chew up everything in its path. And then as it melts, it may leave these erratics. But what it also will leave behind is are these uh, glacial landscapes that have been polished. So you can look at these 
these bedrocks, so um, massive chunks of rocks exposed to air. And if, if you see striations, if you see these scar marks, or if you see other sorts of evidence that ice was there, that also tells you at a certain point in the past, um, a glacier was there. And so with our method, we can date essentially how long a rock has been exposed to the sun. So whether that's a an actual boulder or um, a piece of bedrock, that, that can tell us both um, both of those things can tell us when the ice was last there. And so, you know, if we find erratics, great, we'll date those. And if we find bedrock, great, we'll date that. But what's really key and what can really tell you a lot is if you're able to date a boulder that's sitting directly on uh, bedrock. And if you're able to date both of those and they t- give you the same age, then you can say with quite a bit of confidence, oh, the ice left this area at, say, 17,000 years ago. Yeah. And so I suppose if you find those striations, then that tells you that, you know, this rock was exposed by the glaciers at some point in time. When you know how old those are, then you could say it was never glaciated after that again, or it would have been scraped down again. Correct. Yeah. And you you can look at striations or, um, you know, glacial polish. There, There's a whole myriad of, uh, of features that um, that you can find on, on uh, glacial landscapes that will tell you... Um, yeah, that will tell you essentially if ice was there or not. Yeah. You know, I've been to South Baranoff uh, on, the, on the outside, I've flown over it, but, but went to a place called Rezanoff Lake, which I think you're kind of in that vicinity, maybe a little further south than that. Um, and Rezanoff Lake's a large, it's about 800 feet elevation, but a large valley lake. lake uh, uh, and so, you know, wide, clearly kind of over-steepened walls and stuff to kind of... Uh, uh, glacier came down there and but it turned a little bit to the kind of the northwest a little bit at the bottom of that and outside of that uh, are these and i think i think maybe jim bachel said this or maybe it was somebody else said you know it just doesn't look like it was carved by glaciers there because the topography is is more rolling hills which you don't really associate Uh, glaciers tend to obliterate that kind of stuff i guess is that kind of kind of your your experience with glaciers yeah that's definitely true that that after a landscape has been overridden enough by glaciers, it tends to have this diagnostic um, shapes, yeah. right, that, that make it very glacial looking. Um, one of the tricky parts about this part of the world, however, is that the data that we've, we've uh, gathered so far tell us that the maximum phase of ice flow in places that were covered by the glaciers during the last ice age, the maximum duration of ice coverage was a couple of thousand years. Contrast that with parts of mainland Alaska or Arctic Canada or Greenland, which during an Ice Age event might be covered for 10,000 years or tens of thousands of years. So it looks like in this part of the world, even in the coldest um, you know, lows of Earth's cyclic climate back and forth, even in those coldest troughs of the time series of temperature through time, it only results in glaciers getting out to this outer coast for maybe just a couple of thousand years during each v- cold trough, mm-hmm. each peak of every little ice age that the Earth has had in the last couple million years. That may not be enough time to really carve a landscape to make it look glacial. Uh-huh. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the ice didn't cover it for maybe a short period of time. Yeah. So it's just yet one more reason why we need to get boots on the ground down there to get some samples. Right, right. That makes sense. And so, um, so Caleb, you're collecting these samples and you're actually are you going to be processing them this is part of the work that you're going to be doing as a as a graduate student yeah that's correct so i'll be in the lab uh, the next couple of years 
playing with acids and looking <laughs> at date rocks. <laughs> so how does that how does that work? I mean, I don't I I know in principle that cosmic rays come in and and uh, and this is just from talking to you the last couple of days uh, and uh, uh, penetrate, but basically change something in the rock. Uh, that that and, and you can essentially use that as a clock of some sort. It presumably is calibrated at some point, and and then you say, oh, it's got this much change due to cosmic rays, so therefore, it must be about have this much exposure. Yeah, correct. And uh, Jason, if if I say anything wrong, please feel free to correct me. But um, the analogy I've heard is is that it's it's sort of like a sunburn. So you come out from the winter. Uh, you know, or or the gray southeast Alaska, and you're in the sun, and gradually and gradually your skin will get darker as as it's exposed to the sun rays. So, in, in essence, it's the same um, with with these rocks. So, you know, they're uncovered from ice, and they've been unexposed to light, perhaps uh, well ever. So, this is their first exposure to light, and as they sit there, they're they're bombarded by these cosmic rays. And what these rays do is is they will change the um, the properties in, in, in certain elements uh, where and, and will cause decay. So we're, uh, for example, are, are interested in looking at beryllium-10. And we know the rate at which this is produced in the mineral quartz um, from the decay of radioactive decay of oxygen um, down to beryllium-10. And so if we know how much beryllium-10 is in the rock and we know the rate at which it is being produced in that rock, um, which uh, others, far smarter people than I, have figured out. Using that more or less simple ratio, we can figure out exactly how long uh, this rock has been exposed and you know how how deep that sunburn is, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just—it was funny because we were talking about cosmic rays, and I was just happening to read today. It's like we might be about to hit the record for cosmic rays in the in the space area because era because the the. Um, solar minimum is such a deep solar minimum that there's more cosmic rays coming in. But I imagine over the timescales that, that you're all working on, essentially all of that averages out. There's there's fluctuation along the way, but but in general, you know, you're looking at tens of thousands. I don't know how, how, how long, how old this kind of works to, but tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years maybe. Yeah, that's right. The method can be applied way back in geologic history. If, if there's a piece of the Earth's crust that's been so stable that it's been sitting out and getting dosed by cosmic radiation, like you, like an Antarctica, for example, jumps out at me, millions of years old. You can get exposure ages that are millions of years old. Oh, so like uh, the rocks in uh, Australia, was it Ayers Rock? That's exactly. That super old one. Yeah, uh, yeah. And they don't change in millions of years. It's so like stable. There's not like rain and landslides and things like that that modify the Earth's surface mm-hmm. like up here. So it just hangs out and just like gets super soaked up with cosmic radiation and builds up all these cosmogenic isotopes and yeah and do those so do those isotopes then are they end up being stable or do they ultimately decay as well yeah it turns out that the the there's a family of cosmogenic isotopes of isotopes that we call cosmogenic isotopes there are some stable ones and there are some radioactive ones among the radioactive ones they have a variety of half-lives so they have different rates of decay once they build up um, beryllium 10, what Caleb said is one of the ones that we use does have a half-life, but it's so long, it's like a million and a half years mm. that on our short time scales of dating 15,000 year old glaciation, the half-life isn't a major part of the equation of uh, when we're yeah. working through the math. Yeah, I suppose. So, so the other wrinkle in this, you know, I, I'd ask you about this, but basically vegetation doesn't have a significant impact or, or I suppose soil would if it built up enough. 
Um, yeah, like mineral matter. Like vegetation, so the density is so low, it's not a good blocker of mm-hmm. cosmic radiation. But if you get some mineral matter in there, like if the soil has minerals or grains or like a sand deposit, that could shield the underlying rock from cos- the full cosmic radiation. Right, because this came up in the context of, of like, uh, uh, Mount Edgecombe, Fred's Creek, the, the lava there. It, it's on the shore now, so it's all exposed. But it's not hard to imagine that when sea level was o- uh, uh, much lower, that it was covered in ash, um, perhaps. Uh, and that ash then would um, would not uh, – it would it basically wouldn't be at the surface. So it would not be aging at the, at the rate you would expect. Um, but but maybe for the question of like was this you know pre or post last ice age then that's that's not going to be significant um, even if that were the case so if it were a hundred thousand years old covered in ash for a long time and then exposed um, it would still show up as being fairly fairly old yeah that's right you're certainly tapping into some of the nuance of of that discussion and how these dating methods actually work that um, the major ash that that you know you see. Ar- in the hills around the town here, this orange granular deposit came out of the volcano over there 13,000 years ago. And so if that lava flow over there that we visited today at Fred's Creek had been sitting around for tens of thousands of years, if it really erupted and cooled in place 100,000 years ago, that particular ash fall, the 13,000 year ago one that's about three feet thick all over the hills here, um, that particular ash fall would come quite a bit later in geologic time than when the lava first flowed so there there uh, there ought to have been a time period if that lava flow is quite old there ought to have been a time period when it could have soaked up some cosmic radiation and made those isotopes that we'll be measuring yeah well and then i guess that was the part of the advantage of doing the two different ways of aging is because if that rock is is old but the surface is young then that tells you something. Yeah. Um, that it wasn't exposed for whatever reason. Yeah, that's yeah. actually, that's right. That's the real advantage of doing this other dating method, this argon-argon thing you mentioned, because that tells us actually when the lava came out of the volcano, flowed down the flank, and then cooled in place and became rock. So for folks that uh, might be inspired to, to, I guess that's probably a lot of lab work, analytical chemistry, is it? Or, or uh, maybe it's even beyond that, that to, to do, these, do these kind of analyses. And it sounds like some of it you do in, in your own lab, but, but a lot of it ends up getting sent out. Um, like I'm just kind of curious, what, what sort of field do people go in if they want to do this kind of, kind of work, uh, to aging rocks and that kind of thing? Well, I guess as as the person who's just starting his career, um, I mean, I, the, for starters, it's it's majoring in geology, and you know, geology or geoscience or earth science, whatever a university might call it, is so broad. You can do anything from studying volcanoes, as you said. You can study uh, hydrology. You can study climate. You can study landslides. Uh, la- landslides, yeah, which is a great and example. Hazards, geological and, hazards. Yeah, you can actually study rocks, but one one of the one of the things you can study is is a field known as geochronology. Mm. And so geochronology is essentially um, the study of dating either rocks, their formation or dating geologic events. So in our case we're interested in in dating these geologic events. Um, so for people who are interested in out there, I mean my path was relatively simple and it might be what other people did. So I finished my undergraduate, um, and I actually, uh, and I got an undergraduate degree in geology, and I actually did a thesis involving a different geochronological method. Um, And, you know, I applied to work with other, with researchers who were doing geochronology. um, And 
this method of surface exposure dating has been very interesting because of all the applications it has, um, especially in the field of paleoclimate and figuring out what the climate will do in the future. So is that kind of your particular interest is, is uh, paleoclimate and, and that kind of what you're, you're going for or, or is that? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I, I, I think, um, you know, when, when people hear you're a geologist, they always assume you love rocks. And yeah. while I do think rocks are fascinating, <laughs> I'm really interested in, you know, really using geology as a tool to figure out what happened, you know, in the past to figure out what will happen in the future and try, you know, to mitigate what will happen or, or, or just get a better understanding and yeah. hope we can predict. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You know, it, it does, it, uh, the rocks store a lot of information, but they're not very not very vocal with it, I guess, in some <laughs> cases. Uh, a little tricky to get it out. I mean, if we could get them to talk, it'd be so right. much easier, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I sometimes uh, idly speculate. I wonder what it's like to, to be like... Because it's, it's, it's this thing of timescales. And, you know, as soon as you get into geology, I mean, you, you all are working in, in like, minuscule timescales by geologic standards, right? But by human standards, it's still very long. And, and you think, you know, one of the... One of the um, when I've taught math class, one of the things that I've... Um, exercises I've given students uh, over the years is to just off the top of your head, you know, estimate how long a million seconds is in the most reasonable units. Uh, how long is a billion seconds in the most reasonable units and how long is a trillion seconds in the most reasonable units. And nobody ever gets any of them remotely close to right. And not, I don't expect them to, but they don't even get the ratios right. Like when you ask somebody, well, what's the difference between a million and a billion, you know, for they think about, oh, okay, we well, have to multiply by a thousand, but nobody ever multiplies their estimates by a thousand we just have such a difficult time comprehending how long you know so you're you're we're talking in the scope of a hundred thousand years here um and then you get to the millions and the billions of years and you're but that's just such an immense like there's so many hundreds of thousands of years that fit in those millions and billions that that it's it's kind of crazy to think about so it is uh it is interesting to me sometimes to just kind of think well what is what would it be like to experience things at the scale of time that rocks do, you know, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah, of, of course. And I, th- I think going back to the to the research Jason and, and other researchers at University of Buffalo have done, I, it really spoke to me because the time scale we're operating on is 10, 15, 20,000 years. And during that time, I mean, humans were populating the United, the, what, what is today the United States and Central America, um, South America. And I think to me, that's a really powerful part of this research is looking into the anthropological implications that these refugia have and, mm. and what that means for human migration. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things with, yeah, the refugia and, and the changing sea levels that I know um, Jim Bachtel has, has done some work. I'm, I'm sure with, with many others, uh, he's just the one that I've happened to hear of talking about it is the paleo shorelines um, and looking at those uh, wave cut terraces seems to be the thing that he often talks about to to try and uh, and and various tricky ways of uh, clever ways I should say of, of figuring out how old certain places are and and then using that to anchor uh, anchor especially shorelines clamshells apparently being a very good <laughs> a, a good way to to uh, to get some ages there but that Sitka doesn't seem to have like like the paleo shorelines in Sitka seem to be below the surface like there's there's some suggestions of wave cut terraces I suppose in the bathymetry it sounds like and and that maybe um, because of the way that the sea levels and stuff worked and the four bulge coming out uh, from the glaciers where essentially the glaciers weigh everything down and then it's got to go somewhere. So it pushes up outside the glaciers, uh, changes things around a little bit. 
Um, and it sounded like, I don't know, have you worked at all in, uh, or, or looked at the Haida Gwaii kind of stuff? Sounds like they've done a lot more work on these kinds of questions than has happened so far in the, in Southeast Alaska. Yeah. I mean, one advantage of Haida Gwaii is it's, it's sitting further out Mm -hmm. towards the ocean than some of the, um, islands you have in uh, Southeast Alaska. Um, and people think that Haida Gwaii had its own glaciers on it, Mm -hmm. um, it's got very interesting faulting and a tectonic um, part of the story down there. I think people think that there was probably places there that escaped, escaped glaciation. But, you know, back to what Caleb said about the archaeological implications of the glacial history, it's all, like, tied together and the sea level history. Like, we, you know, people want to know, was there, like, a, was there a sidewalk out there that the <laughs> humans walked on from mainland Alaska, Beringia? down to the Americas. And to answer that, obviously it wasn't a sidewalk. It was would have been pieces above and below sea level and so on, and there's no doubt boats would have been required. But answering that question about whether or not it was easy for them to migrate through this area has to do with both the glacial history and the sea level history. Yeah, and it's uh, sea level turns out to be complicated, as I understand. I mean, not just like, it's easy enough to conceive of this the, the sea level rising up and down, but it turns out that it doesn't do that the same everywhere, I guess, which is which is an interesting, complicating factor, <laughs> I suppose, that that uh, to, to figuring some of this out. So it's helpful to have ways of, of looking at. And so um, that was one thing that so the the ocean, the water is another way that this the, that the surface can be covered. And I know that there's these lava flows offshore that are in deep water, but were clearly formed in uh, above above the water. Um, and uh, so those you couldn't use the same sort of dating technique for because they're essentially too deep. Um, I guess you could, you could, if you dated them, what it would tell you is how long they were exposed before the water came, essentially. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, that, it just blows my mind that you can go offshore, you can go down 300 feet, and you can see the surface of a lava flow that you know was cooled above the ocean. Yeah. Right? The structure, the flow structures, it's exactly like what you would see in Hawaii, and it's exactly like what we saw at Fred's Creek today. You see those surface textures and features that of an above-ocean cooled lava at, like, minus 300 feet. It's just so cool. So you know that when that lava flow was emplaced, the sea level in this area was way lower than today. Uh, and so the... The dating method we were talking about earlier to date the actual rock, the crystallization age of the rock, of the lava, that would be the same down there as it would be at the samples we got at the beach today. Um, And the exposure dating method, there's going to be information there, right? Like today, all all that cosmic radiation is attenuated or dissipated in the column of water, and and it's not reaching the seafloor out there. But there was a time period after the lava flow crystallized, but before sea level came up, when it would have been dosed a little bit from cosmic radiation. Yeah. And so that dosing, if we could measure it, if we could get a, a rover down there to get us with a claw to grab us a sample, that would be super useful for our research because we could measure the, the isotopes in there and it might be equivalent to a couple thousand years or 4,000 years or 1,000 years. And that's information that we could, we could build on. So it's the easiest way. To, I mean, obviously, there's no real easy way to sample at that kind of depth. Um, you're, you're starting to talk uh, probably research vessel ship um, and and with a submersible, I guess. I imagine they have tools for, for doing that, little grabbers and saws and stuff that work underwater. Or, or is it possible to, like, drop a, a punch thing that'll 
punch in and, and get you a, a bit of a core? That's a good question. We should talk to our oceanography colleagues to yeah. see what they have, brainstorm with them about how we would do it. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I know that they do, I mean, they do cores of sediment. Well, and that's part of what's fascinating to me out there is that, that it's apparently not full of sediment. I guess <laughs> I didn't, I don't, apparently there's deep sea ocean currents that can keep those things cleaned off. And I, uh, I find that rather interesting in and of itself. But um, yeah, so th- yeah, it'd be interesting. So that's, that's a, that's a future, future research topic that hopefully there's, there's funding to do. Cause I imagine that starts to get a little expensive, um, when you're doing exactly. Work. And if after our project ends, we find that Southern Baranoff was covered with ice and we find that perhaps even Kruzov was covered with ice. If we conclude that after a, a few more years of research, then the next place to look is offshore. Yeah. And that requires an ocean-going vessel and some coring. But you know what? In that ocean floor out there, 300 feet deep, but that would have been above the, the ocean level at that time, there are uh, depressions in the surface that would have been freshwater lakes. Mm-hmm. So... You could take an ocean-going vessel and a coring rig. It happens all the time. This kind of technology exists. And you could take a core, a sediment core, into a depression that's now covered by ocean water. But when that was above the ocean level, that would have been filled with lake sediments. And so you get a geologic record. You get layers of that time period that could be radiocarbon dated. Mm. And that would be just killer research. That's a bit more expensive than the kind of work we're doing here. I mean, of course, helicopters ain't cheap. Right. But, you know, hiring an ocean-going vessel for a cruise is – that's yeah. the bigger bucks. Yeah. Then you're hiring the crew as well <laughs> to yeah. run that vessel. And that's right. So part of your work overall, you've, you've looked at those kind of lake cores as, as part of what you study? Yeah. In fact, we just um, uh, worked on an island offshore, Prince of Wales, a little island called Sumez Island. Um, Caleb and I and some other students were there just about a week ago. Um, and, and we have little rafts that we take out on lakes – uh, one has a tripod on it, and we have a coring device. Hmm. And we send um, empty plumbing tubes down to the bottom of the lake. We drop them down vertically, and we pound those things vertically into the sediment pile, all that mud that accumulates at the bottom of lakes. And we pull up what's called the sediment core. And then we take that sediment core back to the lab. We split it open lengthwise, and we look at all the layers, and we read those layers like a book. And we can date all those layers, and we get a continuous record of the environmental history of this area. And we were uh, planning on going into uh, this part of Baranoff Island that may be a refugium. may not be. Maybe we need to get there. We were planning on flying in Mm -hmm. with a helicopter or a float plane and getting put out on one of these lakes and doing a lake sediment core there. Um, The weather this particular field season for us has been a bit prohibitive. And so that plan got changed about a week ago. Yeah. Um, and hence us being in Sitka, waiting for an opportunity to get out there for a couple of hours with a chopper. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose, you know, on South Baranoff, there's some big lakes that were pretty clearly part of those those glacial things. The but valley I, glaciers, yeah. Yeah, I think there was, um, I don't know if uh, the, Tom Ager did the, I think he did some uh, coring on, on South Baranoff. And I don't know if, if, like, I don't know what happens to those cores. Do they go into deep storage so that other people can look at them? Or, or do they get pulled apart when you're doing that kind of stuff? So I just didn't know if, like, you would have access to the cores that other people have done from that Yeah, area. for sure. Um, we've talked a lot with Tom Ager, who, who's just retired from the U.S. Geological Survey in Denver. And he's done t- tremendous amount of work and really good work here in southeast Alaska. And he's a, he's a pollenologist and a botanist. And so he 
He collects sediment cores and extracts all the microfossils that tells him what vegetation existed on the landscape through time. And he, with Jim, did, Bechtel, did indeed core uh, a lake or two on Baranoff, a little bit north of where we're going okay. this particular yeah. trip. So the geologic history may be a little bit different because there are these local glaciers that may have spilled down valleys. But their sediments um, went back about fourteen or 15,000 years ago, and then their core ended in a big um, layer of sand. Mm. And they don't know how to interpret that sand. Is it glacial sand or is it non-glacial sand? Like a, a way to get that kind of material might be from a non-glacial river or the wind might blow it in if, if there's an exposed continental shelf with a lots of sediment supply. The wind might fill in a basin of a bunch of mineral silt and sand and stuff like that. So um, the results are, are promising, but yeah, but maybe they weren't collected from the exact location that we're trying to get to this time. Yeah. Yeah, so this, uh, I guess keep trying is is for for some of these like it's it's funny that that it's like oh that's pretty old right i guess what did you say 14 10 to 14,000 yeah, 14 15 yeah yeah 14 15,000 so so that would have been shortly after the ice had retreated if it was if, there even if it was there yep um and and so yeah just that that tantalizing but not not quite enough to to draw the draw the conclusions that you'd hope so um yeah it makes me wonder you know about these lakes that uh, um uh, you know, some of the lakes, like Readout Lake, uh, south of town here, which I had told you a little bit about before, it's only, I don't know, 10 feet above sea level these days, uh, 900 feet deep. Uh, so it's an old uh, fjord. And, but I was like, what, what is in the bottom of that? It's brackish, uh, brackish water now. It doesn't ever turn over. So um, I, I've been curious. And even if it's only been it, – because of the uplift that's happened here, like it's probably – not been that long since it was connected and r- routinely connected. And I imagine it was cut quite, you know, over time, like the highest tides would get in there and stuff. But, but what sort of sediments accumulated in the bottom of that? And, and like, what kind of things can you learn from, from those sorts of sediments, especially in a lake like that, where it, it is this brackish, probably really, they say it smells really sulfurous and, and pretty, pretty gross. Actually, if you sample water from a, below about 200 feet, the, um, what you can learn, from a tube of mud is incredible yeah um it turns out that lakes are just magical catchments of information and then they store that information at the bottom in these layers you can tell time of the layers because you can use the geological dating technique radiocarbon dating and there's so much you can look at in those layers Uh, all the life gets fossilized so that is um, algae that lives in the lake it's plants that live on the landscape that get washed into the lake. Um, you can look at the molecules. You can look at the macrofossils. Um, you can look at like isotopes that are preserved in stuff that forms in those layers. It's just an unbelievable treasure, tro- tre- treasure trove of information. And in that lake, for example, the layers that you would get in your tube of mud down there, uh, some of them might contain fossils that only from plants or algae that grew in in freshwater and some of the fossils you you might identify in the sediment layers the ancient ancient sediment layers might have been from stuff that grows in salt water and so a lake like that it might have a a slug of saline water at the bottom today with a freshwater cap and Mm -hmm. so it's it's pretty much telling you that that lake has been in the ocean and has recently popped out or vice versa or whatever that it's moving that the ocean level and the lake threshold the outlet have been changing relative to each other, the layers in the bottom of that lake 
would have a record of that. You could, uh, a geologist and a paleoecologist could tease that out from that sediment record. Wow. So, yeah, I imagine it'd be an interesting project for somebody to do someday <laughs> to, to, to core that and see. You know, I suppose it's possible, as you say, that it was fresh, then salt, then fresh again. Uh, you know, that there was some sort of the way that the sea levels all went. And I suppose if you got to the bottom, to the bedrock bottom or, or something, then you could say when, I mean, it, it presumably was an over scoured, you know, glacially scoured uh, a valley bottom. Um, and that, uh, that you could then tell when that was, ex- uh, when that was, um, that's uh, exactly right. Yeah. So like in, in my work, what I do routinely in an area, like in where I've worked in Alaska, uh, mainland Alaska or in Greenland or all these other places I work, we go, our, our, our sampling kit, our field kit, you know, we do like a, a doctor, a house call, we have a bag of goodies and we go to a field site and we collect all these samples that tell us the history of the ice in that area. In our kit is a rock hammer and a chisel and a little rock saw, and we can collect rock samples and do this exposure dating thing that Caleb was telling you about. And then also in our kit are tubes that we fill with mud from lakes. And the where that, tu- that sediment column in the bottom of a lake, at the base, the sediment tubes often go into glacial materials. So like a big clay unit or a gravelly cobbly unit that the glacier left behind. And the the age of the first sediments that get deposited on top of the glacial sediments should correspond with the exposure ages we get from nearby Mm. erratic boulders and bedrock surfaces. Right. So if there's anything that geologists like to do is to check their work with independent methods. Right. Um, The, you know, it's all, there's sort of like a geo fantasy that we need to create to tell a story, to learn about the history of the earth. And that is constrained by data. And the more we can constrain the problem with multiple approaches that are independent of each other, they give you the same answer, then you can tell a much more secure story. Yeah, you become more confident. Um, and do you also look like around here, there's a lot of bogs and stuff, and I know they accumulate over time as well. Is that, is that something that you, you also look at? Yep, also, bogs are also a great target for accumulating, steadily accumulating through time, layers of sediment. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we just have a few minutes here, and I know this is both, well, it sounds like you were in Sitka long, long ago when you were young, Caleb, but don't remember it. So your first uh, memory of being in Sitka, and just curious what your, what your uh, impressions are, your experience here, of, uh, you know, of the, of the place and the geology, you know, from your, from your experience and, and what you're looking to do. Uh, I mean, well, just to start off with the town, it, it's gorgeous. Uh, I'm a, yeah... Alaskan born, but raised in the Northwest. So this weather is no shock to me. It's quite a comfort. And, you know, actually, as I was right before here on, on, on uh, Sumez Island and um, over in Thorn Bay, I was reading uh, Alaska by James Mishner. And he spends, you know, quite a lot of that book talking about Sitka. So for well, me, he's, yeah, he stayed here. Yeah. I actually had dinner with him when I was a little kid, but my parents had him and his wife over for dinner. Oh, man. Yeah. Wow. My yeah. So, with greatness. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, I mean, I just remember reading that about, uh, you know, um, Baranoff and, and the Russian trading companies coming up here and establishing Sitka and the sea otter trade uh, of the fur, rather. And, you know, the battles that were fought, uh, I believe, between the Tlingit and the Russians. So now actually being here and seeing it not only in a historical context, but also geologic context has been wonderful. And I mean, it's a, yeah, there's fewer places I've seen that are prettier. 
<laughs> so, yeah. I, well, you won't get an argument from me there, but I <laughs> will also acknowledge to being highly biased. Uh, like, mm. I, I'm from Sitka, and Sitka is the only place that I really want to live. So, <laughs> uh, so I, I tend to – it may be a post hoc justification of, like, why would I want to be here? Because it's the best place, of course. So That's <laughs> yeah, gorgeous. You know, the first couple of days we were here, like yesterday in the – the day before, um, you know, the weather was so poor that you couldn't really see the hills. And just looking out your studio now, I'm like, oh, that's what it looks like. Wow, it is steep here. Yeah. It's just yeah. The, these <laughs> mountains just rise right out of the ocean. And I don't know if you could create something intended to be more beautiful than this. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, it is, you, you get a different perspective when you start going up those hills as well. You know, the, the sea level to 4,200 feet, you know, in, in maybe a mile and a half as the crow flies kind of thing ends up being quite a lot of relief <laughs> to, to get up and the, the oversteepened hills. And it is interesting, we talked a bit about geology, that the geology of the island seems to impact, you know, the steepness, the way that it weathers, I guess, and how much of it tends to be, like, like it can be equally steep, but, but one rock type has a lot more cliffs and the other one tends to be just uniformly steep. I guess it's, I don't know exactly how that works. I assume it has to do with the way that, that rocks break down, but uh, it is interesting, like places in the, the on the south southern end of the island, folks that have, have hiked both a lot around town and the north end of the island, and then gone south and said, you know, you look at the topo map and you'd think that, you know, what you're used to being able to do, you go down there and it's much more difficult. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, there's more cliffs and there's more stuff that you have to navigate around. So that's one of those, those puzzles I'm continuing to kind of um, work out, I guess, and try and understand a little bit better. Uh, it's not as easy to get to the south end of town as it is the stuff right around here along the road system. But um, yeah, lots of, lots of stuff that the rock is uh, determining for us. I guess it's, you know, it's, it's setting that foundation for all those other things that are on top of it. So um, but I appreciate you taking some time out of, I know you guys just have a short trip here and, uh, and, uh, we'll look forward. It sounds like in the plans is to come back in a year or two and, and do kind of a, a workshop and, and do some dissemination of, of kind of broadly all the work that's going on or, you know, related or, or specifically this project or. Yeah, that's the plan is to, um, is to work with some other folks to, to, uh, create a, a workshop for, uh, people interested in the natural history of Southeast Alaska and, and uh, hold it. The venue would be the Sitka Sound Science Center. Um, that would be a year or two off from now. So we'll have the results back from our three-year project. So far, it's a three-year project, although it started in 2015. But we're now funded to work for a few more years, and um, we'll think we'll be had a good uh, uh, breathing place to to kind of consider all the results we have up to that point. And the idea is to get all sorts of people in the same room, um, and we could put everybody's latest data. Uh, on the table and and we can hopefully reach some good conclusions about where we sit scientifically with our knowledge about the history of this area well that sounds really exciting that's sort of my idea of of a good time so yeah hopefully that comes about and uh we'll look forward to that maybe we'll get a chance to chat again then and and see what you've learned yeah in the meantime thanks i hope the weather works out to get to south baranoff and of course by the time people are listening to this um it will or won't have i suppose but uh (laughs) Let's hope it will have. Yeah, that's my, <laughs> my hope as well. Well, thank you. Yeah, All right, thank, thank you. you. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded back in the summer of 2019 with Jason Briner and Caleb Wilcott. I want to thank them for taking some time out of their trip here to visit with me, and thank you for listening here. I just want to let you know that Caleb's master's work, which he was uh, talking about and working on at the time, has been published in the journal Geochronology. I'll include a link to that. 
when I post this show on my website. You can find links to this show and all my other shows at sitkanature.org slash raven. I'll look forward to coming back in a couple of weeks. And in the meantime, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCW Sitka.